Well, this morning we're continuing in our series through the gospel according to Luke. So if you have a copy of God's word, I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Last week we looked at the temptation, the last part of the temptation of Christ. And after the temptation, we saw that he had returned to Galilee and that Jesus essentially went viral. Everybody started hearing about him, who he was, what he was preaching, what he was doing. Everybody was aware and that he was teaching in the synagogues. And so this morning, we're going to pick up there. We're going to start at verse 16. And our focus this morning will be verse 16 through 21. This will be two part messages. Um, We're going to see. Uh, Next week, the way they respond. But today, we're going to look at the message of Christ. Next week, we'll look at how people respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read our text this morning. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Puritan John Owen once wrote, quote, longing, breathing and panting after deliverance is a grace in itself. That has mighty power to conform the soul into the likeness of the thing longed after. Unless you long for deliverance, you shall not have it. End quote. This morning, we're going to see the substance, the message, the mission of Jesus, why he came, he essentially tells us. And it's my prayer that as we look at these verses, as we work through this passage, that God will open your heart. And that each of you will be longing, breathing, panting, yearning for a deeper experience of the deliverance that Christ has granted you by faith or to actually be delivered for the first time from the state of sin that you find yourself. And so as we look at these verses, if you're taking notes, the big idea this morning is this. The mission of Christ was to proclaim the message of the gospel and the mission of the church therefore, is to also proclaim the, miss- the mission of the, go- the message of the gospel. Sorry. <coughs> Let me repeat that once more. The mission of Christ was to proclaim the message of the gospel. And the mission of the church, therefore, is to also proclaim the message of the gospel. So our first point this morning is simply the setting. Verses 16 and 17. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Jesus was raised in the town of Nazareth in the small village. 
So he's coming back home. Nazareth, a really small, kind of unimpressive place. It's interesting that in Luke's account of the gospel, the first place we actually see Jesus preaching isn't in Jerusalem, isn't at the center of all the action, but in Nazareth, in this unimpressive village. And he comes, and that's where he declares who he is and why he's here. Not how we would think the king of glory would begin. Not how today we do it. If you look at our politicians, they're not going to Wakanda, Illinois, to McHenry to declare that they're running for president. No, they come down gold escalators. They do something flashy. They go to big cities. They have rallies where? In places of prominence, places that people know typically. But Jesus, in Luke's account, begins his preaching, the first sermon we see in an unimpressive village. A village that wasn't known for lots of money and means. People of humble estate, as we've been seeing. Because this is what the gospel does. The gospel is for everyday people in everyday places. And so this is where Jesus begins his ministry. It says that as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, as a good faithful Jew, goes to the synagogue. The synagogue is the place of central worship for the Jewish people. He would go to synagogue, and a typical service in the synagogue would begin with the reciting of the Shema, which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Then they would move to a time of prayer. Then they would read from the law, which would be from the first five books of the Old Testament. Then they would read a section from the prophets. Then somebody would give a teaching, a sermon of sorts, and then they would close with a benediction. This was the habit of Jesus' life. Think about that. The one who inspires the scriptures faithfully attends synagogue to sit under the reading and teaching of the scriptures. 30 years. It's a lot of humility there. I'm sure whoever was doing the teaching would shake in their boots if they knew the Messiah was in their presence. I, for one, would never want to preach a sermon if Jesus was sitting front row. Uh, But there's a sense that Jesus is here, right? But think about the humility of Christ. In his humanity, he sits there. He absorbs. He's teachable, in a sense. Well, this synagogue day, this Sabbath day, he's in the synagogue, and he is the one chosen to come up. And he would do the teaching that day. And so it tells us, and he stood up and he read. It was customary for one to come up to read the scriptures. But then when they would teach, they would actually sit down. So Jesus comes up, he reads. And he reads specifically from the book of Isaiah. Notice in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So it's the second reading. 
And I just want us to notice the sovereignty of God here. He is given the Isaiah scroll. The person who gave him the scroll had no idea what Jesus was about to preach. But God sovereignly ordains that this scroll is given to him, and he takes the scroll, and he unrolls it, and he goes directly to this passage that is quoted here, which is from Isaiah 61, and we'll look at it in a moment. This is the setting of everything as Jesus begins to preach. But there's something here, a way of application I don't want us to miss. Did you notice that Jesus was a faithful churchgoer? It was his custom. It was his habit to be at Sabbath. Well, we're called Christians, which means Christ followers. So one of the chief ways we follow Christ is by also following his example of faithfully attending church every week and not viewing it as optional. It was the habit, the custom, the discipline of Christ every week to go to the Sabbath service. Is it your habit or do you let yourself off the hook? I'm tired. It's a long week. There's a birthday party. I got tickets to the game. Do you realize there is no excuse to miss church apart from something you're sick? Even if you're out of town on vacation, find a local church. Go online, ask friends, and attend a local church while you're on vacation. The worship of God on the Lord's day should not be viewed as optional. It was the habit of our Lord to weekly be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I just don't want us to miss that. Notice his obedience in the small things. So that's the setting. That went quickly. The the majority of our time is going to be on our second point here, which is the message. Point number two is the message. And this is going to be verses 18 and 19. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As we begin looking at this, again, we notice how Luke is very intentional about showing the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by saying, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord has, is upon me. Then he says, has anointed me. The Spirit is the one who has filled the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the one who empowers the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Jesus reads this passage and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it takes us back to Luke chapter 3, verse 22, at his baptism. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Church, Jesus is the Messiah, and as the Messiah who is truly God and also truly man, he goes and does what he does in the power of the Spirit of God. All that he will accomplish is because the Spirit of God is upon him and anointing him to do so. 
This passage I mentioned was from Isaiah 61. Uh, Verse 19 also is a reference to Isaiah 58, verse 6. So let's read those. Turn with me to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. about 700 years before Jesus walks on earth. These words were written. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who will mourn. And then two chapters earlier, Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of the wicked, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? This is what Jesus would have read in the synagogue. So now we fast forward 700 years. Here this Jewish man, son of Joseph, stands up. He reads this. And then he would sit down and give an explanation. What are we to make of this? Because Jesus will tell us, and we will look at brief later on, that he attributes this and he says that it is fulfilled in his presence. He says, what I just read is fulfilled in me. So how do we understand what this all means? What does it mean to proclaim good news to the poor? What does any of it mean? Well, we see four metaphors here that addresses the spiritual condition of Israel and addresses the spiritual condition of all people. And as we look at these, I want you to realize that in two verses, the word proclaim appears three times. It is undeniable that Jesus, among all other things, he is definitely a preacher. He is the preacher. And so Luke shows the first words of Christ here. Well, not the the first words of Christ to the people of Israel to be the preaching of the word of God. The first metaphor we see is this idea of proclaiming good news to the poor. Now, we have to remember the Jewish expectation. They expected the Messiah to come into Israel and that he would be a deliverer, of course, but he would be a political deliverer. He would restore Israel to its prominence. They would no longer be under the rule and reign of Rome. They would once again be free. So they understand poor in an socio-economic, political sense. That's the expectation. Is that what Jesus means when he says that I have come to proclaim good news, which would be I've come to proclaim the gospel, good news, to the poor? No. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So when Jesus speaks of the poor, Jesus is talking about the poor in spirit here. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's somebody, when they look in the mirror, they rightly understand that they are morally and spiritually bankrupt. They recognize, I don't have anything in myself to present before God. I have nothing. I'm spiritually impoverished. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to those people who feel bankrupt before God. That's what he came for. Do you know it's a blessing? It is a true blessing and grace of God to be able to look in the mirror of life and understand that you are spiritually bankrupt. It is God's grace for you to be able to look in the mirror and say, I am morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. Here's why. Because those that understand their poverty also understand their need. Far too many people in this world do not see themselves as poor before God. They don't see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, and so they don't see the need for God. I don't, what relevance is that with my life? I'm morally good. I'm spiritual. Sure, I believe in some creator. So they never actually see their condition. So they never understand their need, and therefore they just brush aside Jesus the Messiah. The reality is that those in this world, most often those who are rich, especially rich in the sense of the world's possessions, are the ones that are the least aware of the state of their soul. This is why Jesus says it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because those that have lots in the worldly sense are the ones that are most blind to their poverty in the spiritual sense. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? In Luke chapter 18, which we'll reach probably in 2030, there is a picture of some of what spiritual poverty looks like. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. You want to see what somebody that really understands their spiritual poverty looks like? Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 13. Luke 18, 9 through 13. Jesus gives this parable and says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That tax collector understands that he is poor before God. 
and that he needs the good news of God's mercy. Another great description of spiritual poverty would be all of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we see David recognizing it is nothing. And I specifically love, this is the beautiful description of spiritual poverty. It's Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Those who are poor are those whose hearts are completely broken before God because they know they're spiritually bankrupt before him and that their only hope is the gospel, the good news that Jesus says from Isaiah here he came to proclaim. But he doesn't stop there. The next metaphor in this passage says, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word captive, he's, he sent me to proclaim release, pardon, to prisoners. Prisoners of what? Again, we have to understand this in the more spiritual in a spiritual interpretation looking through the gospel here of Luke. Prisoners of sin, prisoners of Satan, those who are in bondage to sin and Satan. It is those people that Jesus has come to proclaim forgiveness to because that word there, liberty, other translations may say release, speaks of the forgiveness that Christ offers through the gospel. We've seen this theme building throughout Luke's Luke's account. In Luke chapter 1, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. And he went into all the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the last chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, verse 47, we are told from the lips of Jesus, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus came to seek and save captives. He came to seek and save sinners who are enslaved to sin and Satan. And if we read our New Testament, we see throughout the New Testament, that very imagery is what is used. Perhaps there is no section of, of the New Testament that speaks more vividly to the, the bondage to sin than Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Then if you go down to verses 16 through 20. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one with whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness and leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Church, there, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, there was a point in your life where you were a slave to sin. The shackles were on you. That's who you belonged to. And if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, don't believe the lie that you're free. You think you're free because you can do whatever you want, but you're just doing the will of Satan. Your entire freedom is in service to your sin. why Jesus says in John 8 34 truly truly I say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin but it's not that you're simply a slave to sin you're also a slave to Satan himself I don't know if you've ever considered this there was a point in your life where you were enslaved to the prince of darkness in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You were following the orders of the devil. Isn't that the great, the great trick that's been happening on this world? Just convince the world the devil doesn't exist. And do the will of the devil under the guise of freedom. So this is who Jesus comes for. Jesus shows, he reads from Isaiah. He's telling, he says it's fulfilled in him. He is proclaiming, he's preaching that I have come to free men and women and children who are enslaved at this moment to their sin and enslaved in this moment to Satan. He has come to bring freedom, to bring pardon, release, liberty. But that is only available one way, and that is through faith in Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only one who can secure that freedom. He is the only one that can free a person from the debt of sin that they could never pay. 700 years earlier, when Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words, it had Christ in mind. So we see that Christ has come to preach good news to those who are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt before God. That he has come to bring freedom to those who are currently slaves, captives, prisoners of sin and Satan. And then he goes on with this third metaphor, and he says, I have come to give sight to the blind. Now, in Luke 18, we see that throughout Luke's gospel and the other gospels, we see that Jesus does give actual sight. He does restore actual sight to the blind. 
But what's at the heart of the gospel message here in Luke is the blindness that all humanity is under apart from faith in Christ. Everyone is born into this world spiritually blind. They do not have eyes to see the goodness and glory of God. They do not have eyes to see the vileness of their sin. They do not naturally have eyes to see the salvation, the forgiveness, the grace that is offered in Christ. Sin has resulted in spiritual blindness. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4 reads, In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan has blinded this world from being able to see Christ in the glory and offer of the gospel. Which I just want to say that should give us pause on how I feel like sometimes we are trying to share Jesus with the world and we get mad, we get frustrated when people seem to not care for it. You have to understand it takes, you have to prayerfully ask God to turn the lights on. The natural person will never see the beauty of Christ and their need of him naturally. You have a better chance of trying to tell a blind person to delight in the rainbow. They're spiritually blind. And so we proclaim the gospel. We have to understand it's not our presentation. It's not our wit. It's not our persuasiveness that's going to win the day. It is a humble, prayerful heart that God would allow them to have their sight recovered. In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Because for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People are blind. Think back for a moment when you were not walking with Christ or perhaps think about where you're at now. Do you remember how the things that now you look at and cause you to gasp and grieve were nothing to you back then? I do. What changed? My vision. How did my vision change? The grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Christ came to do. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, it speaks of what the Messiah would do. Isaiah 42, 7 reads, To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Your subheading in your Bible probably say for that chapter, the Lord's chosen servant. It's speaking of what the Messiah would do, that he would come and allow, restore sight to those who previously could not see the things of God.
2 Corinthians 4, 4, we saw that Satan has blinded the world. But if you were to go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, you would see this. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Has Satan blinded the world? Yes. Satan is not more powerful than Christ. And when the gospel is proclaimed, God will sovereignly give sight to those who repent and believe in him. So we've seen that the Messiah has come to proclaim good news to the poor. That he's come to set free those who are enslaved to sin. That he has come to give sight to those who are blind to sin and to the glory of God. And he goes further. Then in the last metaphor, he says, to set at liberty, to set free those who are oppressed. This is a reference to Isaiah 58, 6, which we saw earlier. That word oppressed, it means crushed in spirit, broken to pieces. I have come to set free those who are shattered. It's speaking of those people who have been beat down by the hardships of the world. Those people that in this broken world where you toil with sin, both inwardly and externally, you've just been ground to the dust. It also includes those that had been weighed down by the oppression of the Pharisees, who we are told in Luke eleven forty six continued to place heavy burdens upon them. These are weary people. Do you see how all four of these metaphors rightly put their finger on the pulse of everything we experience at some point or another? I can promise you, if you're honest with yourself, right now you're either poor in spirit, you're either acting or as a slave to sin or still a slave to sin. You're blind or you're just feeling oppressed, weighed down by it all. That means Jesus came for you. When we read these, this passage, we see Jesus saying, that's all fulfilled in me. This is why I'm here. This is why I came. This is my mission and my message. And we have to ask ourselves some questions. I have to ask myself questions. The first question is this. Do you truly see yourself as spiritually poor before God? Do you have a right view of yourself? Or have the creaturely comforts of this world deluded you to thinking you're not that bad? My son was reading a book and the word came up propaganda. He's like, Dad, what's propaganda? It's false information trying to convince you of something not true. Blah, blah, blah. Do you realize how much propaganda is being thrown at us to make you think you're a good person? To make you think that you don't need God? To make you think that you are your own God? You can just manifest your destiny. Don't buy the propaganda. Look at what the word of God tells you about your condition. Recognize your moral and spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. Do not be deluded. Do not be deceived because you will be damned. 
It's question one. Question number two, are you currently living as a slave to sin even though you will have been saved by the blood of Christ? Or have you not been set free from sin at all? And the shackles of sin are just rubbing into you, cutting you raw. Has Christ set you free by his vicarious death on the cross and resurrection? Only for you to return like a dog to its vomit to the sins that once dominated your life? I'm not saying we won't struggle with sin. In this life, we will. And we should be putting it to death. But no, your struggle with sin is because it's, you want the sin. It's because you want it. Because you've been set free by the king of glory. And to some degree, all of us are still slaves to sin. Not because Christ's work wasn't efficacious enough because it wasn't strong and it wasn't good enough. No, it's because we believe lies instead of truth. It's because we fill our minds and we fill our hearts and we let our eyes look upon sin and we are more filled with sin than we are with the word of God and the righteousness of God. And so we go to sin and we willingly enslave ourselves. We've been set free, but we walk right back in the cell and close the door. For some people, though, they remain slaves to sin because the idea of walking in righteousness and the newness of life and the freedom that Christ has given is scary. Some people rather choose the hell they know than what they would say the hell that they don't. Or Lewis talks about choosing to play with mud pies when you have a vacation at the sea available to you. No one in this room, in this church this morning, needs to be a slave to sin. You're a slave by choice. Because our Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to give liberty, freedom, pardon, release. But in order for that to happen, you have to come to him on his terms. Thirdly, have your eyes been opened to see the reality of your sin. Not, not cognitively know your sin. You know, lots of people can look and say, well, I know that this is sin in my life. That's good. But I'm stuck in really seeing your sin, seeing it in a way that results in what? Spiritual poverty. Seeing it in a way that you realize, wait a minute, I am a slave. Have you seen your sin that way? Have you seen your sin in such a way that your heart is shattered in a million pieces before God and only his grace can glue it back together? Just this weekend, I had a friend who I've lost contact with over the last few months. We started talking. We said, you know, Alex, this last week has been hard. It's been so hard. It's not that I've heard something new, but for whatever reason, the message of the gospel, the reality of sin hit me in such a hard way that I've just been crying all week. 
And we're talking about a big guy. This is a big, burly bear of a man. This is not a man who's given to tears. That's not who he is. But what happened? God gave him sight. God removed the blinders, and he saw his sin for what it was. And how did those blinders get removed? He sat under the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, I'm not going to, nothing, I'm not fixed overnight, but you can't unsee what you've seen. Have you ever wept over your sin? Have you ever felt like vomiting because you were so nauseated by the sin you live in, the sin you partake in? Or do you just say, yep, that sin, his grace is good, and just chalk it up to cheap grace? If you haven't been broken by your sin, then you're not ready to receive the grace of the gospel. Because you haven't seen it. Have you ever seen a, a horrible car accident? Have you ever seen somebody's body perhaps really mangled? Do you ever forget that? You recall it years later and it still gives you that ugh feeling? That's the... If you can recall something like that, why would you have a more visceral response to that than to the sin that lies within you? Pray for God to give you sight to see yourself for the monster that you are apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an ugly, wicked person. So am I. But when the grace of God is poured upon your life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes a monster and he makes it a beautiful trophy of grace because the beauty of God covers you now. But not only a sight to see your sin, but sight to see the beauty of Jesus. Some people really see and lament and are broken and disgusted by their sin, but they can never make the jump to see the beauty of God. They want the forgiveness, but they think God's cruel. They don't see him as glorious. And so we need, when Christ comes and he gives sight to the blind, it isn't just sight to see sin, but sight to see glory. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It is a passage that I think I've marked and highlighted in every Bible I own. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The sight that you are given by faith in Jesus is a sight that allows you to see the glory, the beauty, the excellency, the majesty of God. Have you ever seen God's beauty? If you have, I can tell you this much, nothing in the world compares to it. If you've seen a glimpse of his glory, the most beautiful things in this world have a certain dullness to them. Has he given you the sight of your sin, but has he given you the sight of his glory? Last question, are you living under the oppressing weight of life, the hardships of life and sin? Life's hard. Life will beat you down. 
I'm a huge Rocky fan. All of them. In one of the movies, Rocky said, it's not how hard you get hit, it's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Sounds really good in motivation. It's totally unbiblical. It's not about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. It said, no matter how hard you get hit, Christ will pick you up and carry you. You don't need to walk and remain under the hardship of it all. You don't need to live in such a way that this life just grinds you to dust. You can walk in the freedom and in the rest that Jesus provides. You can drop the burden. You can let it go. One of the most beautiful words about this comes from the lips of our Lord in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I wonder who in this room today needs that kind of rest from the oppressing weight and hardships of life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has come to reverse the effects of sin, and he has come to give humanity what they need most. He didn't come to just restore your physical condition, though he might miraculously heal some. He didn't come to change your societal standing. He didn't come to deliver your political party. Jesus came to preach the good news of the gospel. Jesus has come to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of those who believe in him, to resurrect in the third day, to show that he has victory over death, victory over sin, and that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, which means he's come to meet our greatest need, which means the gospel is enough. You don't need anything more than the gospel. Jesus came and he, Jesus meets people where they're at. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't say, hey, clean yourself up and then we can get together. Jesus meets people where they're at. He meets people in their poverty. Jesus meets people in their enslavement, in their addictions, and in their destructive habits. Jesus meets people in the blindness of how they're living. He meets them in the oppression that the world and its expectations put upon them. Jesus meets people in their depression. He meets them in their suicidal thoughts. He meets them in their loneliness. He meets them in their confusion. He meets them in their fear, in their anxiety, in their emptiness, in their loss, in their grieving, in their disappointment of false saviors. He meets them in every place through the gospel. Which is why he... The section ends here in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's taken from the book of Leviticus 25. It's referring to an idiom for the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was something that happened every 50 years that God had given when all debts were forgiven, all prisoners and captives were set free, all property was given back to its original owners. And so now this is being taken and is being set in and through Christ. Today is the year of Jubilee because today is the year of forgiveness. Today is the year of freedom. 
all of this is available in Christ. The musician Michael Card wrote a song called Jubilee. These are the words. The Lord provided for a time for the slaves to be set free, for the debts to all be canceled so his chosen ones could see. His deep desire was forgiveness. He longed to see their liberty and his yearning was embodied in the year of Jubilee. The chorus goes, Jubilee, Jubilee. Jesus is our Jubilee. Debts forgiven, slaves set free. Jesus is our Jubilee. At the Lord's appointed time, his deep desire became a man. The heart of all true, the heart of all true jubilation, and with joy we understand. In his voice we hear a trumpet sound that tells us we are free. He is the incarnation of the year of jubilee. All these things that it says the Messiah would do, Jesus does, and he does so. And with in Christ every day is a year of jubilee, a year of freedom and forgiveness for those who come to him by faith. What's interesting is Jesus didn't simply proclaim these things as a prophet, but he delivered on them as the Messiah. What Jesus offers, Jesus accomplishes, and Jesus freely gives. So I'll end by saying this. Again, Jesus doesn't simply proclaim the good news that a person can be delivered. Jesus provides the actual deliverance. That deliverance is available to you this morning. Jesus is the preaching prophet who proclaims the good news and is the saving Messiah. And Jesus stands ready to deliver you this morning. If you would recognize your spiritual poverty and turn to him. If you would turn away from the sin that enslaves you. If you would turn away from the sin that blinds you. If you would turn away from the sin that oppresses you. And you would turn to Christ by faith and be made a new creation. When you turn to Christ in faith, you receive spiritual prosperity in Christ instead of spiritual poverty. When you turn to Christ in faith, you receive spiritual freedom in Christ instead of being held captive by sin. When you turn to him in faith, you receive spiritual sight in Christ instead of being blinded by sin. When you turn to him in faith, you receive relief and rest in Christ from the oppression that sin in this world puts upon you. You know, it's interesting when Jesus quoted Isaiah here, he didn't quote all of verse 2. In Isaiah 61, he left off the last part of that verse. Last part of that verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus leave that off? Because in Jesus' first coming, he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bring forgiveness and freedom. You live in light of the first coming of Christ. You live in a time where freedom and forgiveness is available, but Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, then he will return with judgment. And there will be no forgiveness. There will be no freedom. Then there will only be justice. So I plead with you this morning to turn to Christ to receive him as Savior. Today is, today is the year of the Lord's favor for you. Today is the day of salvation. 
The light of the gospel is shining forth at this very moment. And you can step out of the darkness and into the light of Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in him. There is a great deliverance available. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he said, meaning the search is over. He told the Jews in that synagogue, the search is over. What you've been waiting for all these years is here and now in me. So I say to all of you, the search is over. The search is over your poverty, your enslavement, your blindness, your oppression. The search is over to find the solution to those problems. Because the solution stands before you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need only repent of your sin, turn to him, and receive joy unspeakable. May we as a church be found faithful to follow in his steps and to proclaim the message of the gospel that he proclaimed by reading the scroll of Isaiah. The mission of Christ was the proclamation of the gospel. The mission of the church is the proclamation of the gospel. May we be found faithful. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who has sought from eternity past to save a people for yourself. Lord, I thank you that you, by your grace, make people aware of their spiritual bankruptcy before you. And I pray that you would do more of that. I pray that every single one of us this morning would see our spiritual bankruptcy before you and who we are apart from Christ. That we would see that if it's not for Jesus, we are all slaves to sin, but that in Christ we are slaves to sin no more. We are slaves to Christ and his righteousness. That we would praise you for giving us sight when we were blind, sight to see our sin and sight to see the glory of God. That we would praise you and thank you that you have given us rest for our souls and deliverance, freedom, liberty in the midst of the oppression of life in the world and sin. What a glorious Savior you have given us in your Son. Father, there is something in each one of those metaphors for everyone in our lives. So, Father, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, we would remember just those things the poor, the enslaved, the blind, the oppressed, and that you would allow us, Lord, to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ to people in those places, knowing that the glorious gospel is simply this, that God saves sinners by his grace and for his glory through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.